right, good morning. Good morning, yes. Here's your special thing. All right, uh, so glad that you are here today. Uh, happy April, April 3rd. It's amazing. I don't know why we celebrate April 3rd, but it's exciting, right? Um, so we're going to talk about Mark 14 this morning. I, I'm not going to read all of it again uh, as I'm preaching, which normally we do. We wanted you to get a big chunk of Scripture to start things off. We really, we like to go through Scripture really line by line as much as we possibly can so that people don't think that we're just making it up. Because there's a way that you can read the Bible and you can make, the, I'm not returning text messages, I'm setting a timer for myself so you're not here till 3 o'clock. Um, there's a way that you can read the Bible, that you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. You can string together and make a little spiritual kaleidoscope to make yourself feel better about whatever position in life you want to say and say that the Bible actually backs it up. And that's just not how God intends for Scripture to be read, understood, or applied. And so we like to read all of, all of the Scripture we're going to be looking at and then walk through line by line. But this is a big chunk that we're working through, so we're not going to be able to go through each segment of it in great depth. I wish we could. I was telling my wife this morning, ah, it, it really, I struggle with preaching text this long because there's so much that I want to share with you about this. And yet, clearly, that's not what the Lord has for today. So, um, we're going to talk about Jesus as a leader and the different groups that, that were following him. And I'm, I'm pretty sure you're going to be able to find yourself in there, and probably you'll be able to find yourself in every group that I mention, at least at times. But let me start out with a question. Um, if someone is a leader, if someone is a leader and everyone abandons that leader, what does that say about that leader? I heard Harvard. You might not be a good leader. What might it say about the people who are no longer following you? You might not be a good follower. Or maybe the, the leader wasn't putting out good enough content on Twitter or whatever, and you got unfollowed, whatever it is. But if you're a leader and everyone abandons you, uh, most likely it's going to cast a certain um, shade or shadow on your leadership ability and credentials. But if you're the one that was following someone and you leave, you have to reckon within yourself, why is it that I'm no longer following this person? What is it about what they did or said or who they are that caused me to no longer want to follow them? And at times, it's rightful that we, we don't follow the people that we were once following. And we're going to look at Jesus as a leader this morning. And we're going to see Mark 14. And if you were really paying attention, sometimes when we read that much scripture, we, we check out a little bit because it's not an eight second YouTube soundbite that we're like, ah, I'm all in, right? It's a little bit longer. And so we check out. But if you were in the whole time, you would notice that everyone abandons Jesus. Every person in this chapter at some level abandons Jesus. And if you put yourself in the place of Jesus, um, what does that feel like? What does that feel like to have the people that you've invested your, your life into walk away from you because of certain circumstances? And there are really two key figures that stick out in this passage. One is Judas and one is Peter. And I think that Judas and Peter actually represent larger groups of people that we're going to look at. But here's the thing with Judas and Peter. They were both heavily involved with Jesus. Externally, there was nothing about them. Judas didn't have like a secret tattoo under his armpit or something showing that he was going to betray Jesus. There was nothing like that. If you saw Judas and Peter, you would say both followers of Jesus, both heavily involved and contributing to the ministry of 
Jesus. And this is what's so scary about it, is that there was no external warning to what was going to happen. You see, because abandoning, abandoning Jesus begins as an internal thing. It begins with little slight rumblings. It's like Montreal-sized earthquakes, right? It kind of, I, I was awake a few years ago when the earth, an earthquake happened here. I think I, we've had three of them that I've felt since I've, I've lived here. But it, it sounded like a truck just kind of banged into our house. And that was it. There was no real shaking or anything. It was like a huh. And then I just moved on with making my toast or whatever was happening. Um, that, that's how abandoning Jesus starts. Just little internal rumblings. And so following Jesus consistently requires a right view of who Jesus is and a right response to who he is. And as I've already said, I think Judas and Peter represent groups. And I think we're going to find ourselves in both of the groups that Judas and Peter represent. So let me start with the first group. And the first group is those who are disappointed with Jesus. The first group is those who are disappointed with Jesus. And I just want to be clear about something. Oh, I have a, I have a fun uh, moving table this morning. So you're not tripping out if you see it moving, hopefully. And, uh, but to be clear, this doesn't mean, um, th- this idea of being disappointed with Jesus is being disappointed with who we thought Jesus was. Not really with who Jesus is, but who we thought Jesus was, right? I am very happily married. My wife is incredible right? But as you get to know, if you're married, as you get to know your spouse, there are things that you're disappointed about. Not because of them, but because of what you thought marriage was going to be like. You thought marriage was going to be, you know, sunrises and sunsets all the time. No, no issues, no troubles. And we're constantly disappointed with, oh, that's not what marriage really is. Marriage really isn't a Ben Affleck rom-com, right? That's not how it goes, uh, ben Affleck, J-Lo, not J-Lo, J-Lo, right? That's maybe more like marriage, I don't know. But uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, that's fine. No big deal. Not missing much. Um, but those who are disappointed with Jesus are disappointed with their idea, their ideas of who Jesus is. And so let me get into the text. Mark 14, verse 1 and 2 says, It was now two days before the Passover, uh, this is one of the biggest celebrations of the Jewish people, right? This is representing that they're free from slavery in Egypt. They're remembering this every year and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes, so the religious leaders, they were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So the leaders want to kill Jesus, but not loudly, quietly, because the people really like him. And so if they kill him out in broad daylight, the people would be a bit against them, and they still want to they have their cake and eat it too, right? They want to be able to kill Jesus and have the people still follow them. So they needed a crafty way, and they found an opportunity with this guy, Judas. Jump down to verse 10 of Mark 14. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray them. You see, Judas, I wish I could tell you a lot more about Judas today, but I can't. Um, Judas followed Jesus faithfully, just like the other 12, until he was disappointed. Until he was disappointed with who Jesus really is. Because it didn't line up with who Judas wanted him to be. Because here's what Judas was about. 
He was the treasurer. He held the money bag of the disciples. And we find out in other parts of Scripture that Judas was stealing from the money bag for himself. He was constantly upgrading to first class as they were going along. He was constantly buying another snack for himself. He was putting in a little bit more in his RRSP when no one else was getting that. Judas was constantly had his money, or his money, his hand in the money bag. He was paying himself. And Jesus, in verse 3 to 9, which we'll look at later on, uh, Jesus lets a woman waste this ointment that was worth thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars. Judas saw that as his security, his comfort. And he saw that being wasted away on Jesus. In Judas's mind, Jesus was a means to the end that Judas wanted. Jesus was kind of like Judas's sugar daddy that was going to give him the things that he wanted. Do you see how Jesus and Judas's view of Jesus are incompatible? They're not the same. That Judas was focused on a more precious God, the God of money. And he sold Jesus for a meager amount of silver. You see, when, when Jesus wasn't who Judas wanted him to be, Judas couldn't have him around anymore. Judas had to get rid of him. Judas had to block him. Judas had to unfollow him, and the best way to do that was to actually secure his death so that Jesus would be completely removed from the picture and Judas could go living the life that he wanted to live. So in verses 43 to 49, which we won't read, he actually led people to remove Jesus and arrest him, and he betrays him with a kiss. I don't know if you've been betrayed. I've been betrayed. But to be betrayed with a kiss, that's brutal. Absolutely brutal. And yet that's the level of confidence that Judas had in the God that he was pursuing. That's how much of a hold it had in his heart that he was willing to betray the the Son of Man, the Son of God, the one who is here to rescue all people and to do it with a kiss. But here's the thing. What Judas did is is true for so many of us. It's true for so many of us. We start following Jesus because we hear about forgiveness and freedom. And it sounds amazing. It sounds unlike anything that we're offered in this world. It sounds so good. And then we get to something like Evan talked about, giving. What? Money? People get all weird when we talk about Jesus, church, and money. And yet Jesus talked about money more than anyone else. Because Jesus knew that money is the root of so much in our hearts. Right, that, that money has a preeminent place for us. That if you show me your bank statement, I'll probably be able to, to see where your false idols are. And we all have them. We all have things that we end up worshiping. We don't even know we're worshiping these things. But we start following Jesus and we're willing to change until the true allegiances, until the true gods of our hearts are threatened. That security, that that comfort, that that power, that relationship, that idea, that sexuality. All these things that end up getting challenged by Jesus. We say, no, 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 I liked you up to this point. But now that that thing is being challenged, 
I, I don't know that I can, I don't know that I can follow you anymore. And we have to do, we have to do some, some gymnastics at this point. We're in the Cirque du Soleil gym, right? So we can talk about gymnastics, right? We have to figure out a way that if we really like Jesus, how do we keep the things we like about Jesus on the smorgasbord of this spiritual thing? It ends up being like a little Bob Ross thing where all his, uh, you know, Bob Ross, right? There's a reviving of Bob Ross that's coming out apparently, but uh, great hair, really great hair, uh, Stephen, I feel like your beard and Bob Ross's hair could go together. Yeah, man. If you just put your beard up top, you could be Bob, Bob Ross. But we have this spirituality like Bob Ross's paints, right? And we've got a little bit of Jesus. We've got a little bit of karma. We've got a little bit of reincarnation. Uh, we've got a little bit of pay it for. We have all this stuff. We're like, man, we like all this stuff. But, but this color that Jesus is talking about, we don't like that color. And so we just kind of cut off that paintboard, that part. And we keep the parts of Jesus we like, and we get rid of the parts that we don't like. We try and create our own way. And in a very real sense, I don't know how many of you go to Costco. I think they're doing samples at this point. Uh, Again, yeah, some of you don't eat. You go to Costco, you do the sample run, and you leave, right? Maybe you grab a hot dog on your way out, because that's enough for a whole family to eat one of those hot dogs. But you go through, and it's like, I'll have a little bit of Jesus. Oh, that looks tasty. Let me have some of that. And then you go buy something that you can smell from two hours away, and you're like, no, thank you. I don't want that sample. And we treat Jesus like that, like Costco samples. But here's the thing. Jesus isn't a Costco sample. He's Costco. Like everything. You have to take it all. You don't get to siphon off a little bit or remove that vendor. He won't let you do that. Tim Keller um, former pastor in New York City, says, Jesus isn't the, the, the gospel isn't the ABCs of Christianity, it's the A to Z. That Jesus and the gospel isn't a classroom in the building of Christianity, it is the building. That this is a reality, that if you want Jesus, you take him all. And he won't have it any other way. Now, we all have to grow into understanding, accepting, and submitting, and he's patient, He's patient unlike you and I. We're not patient. We get upset in the Costco sample line, right? We're not patient at all, and yet he's patient. He's not trying to change us all at once. He is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. That Jesus would have received Judas again. This is the type of love that moves inside of him. So if this is you in the first group, that you've started following Jesus, but you're seeing that you're disappointed with your ideas of who he is, would you this morning invite Jesus to keep disappointing your false ideas of him? Invite him to do it. Be, be proactive. Be on the offense. Jesus, would you wreck my false ideas of who you are so that I get the true version of you? You see, if I was to come by and you were selling something on Facebook Marketplace and I came by with all kinds of 20s or 50s or 100s and I, and I paid you with them, you could be very happy about that. You could be very secure. But what if those were fake? What if I gave you fake money? That fake money is absolutely useless. But it would comfort you until you found out that it was useless. And that's the way some of your spirituality is. That you're comforted with fake money. You're comforted with a fake idea of who Jesus is. 
And Jesus is saying, I, I don't, I don't want to play with you. I don't know if you've ever gone on vacation. You've seen pictures of where you're going to be staying. You get there and you're like, this sucks. This was not the picture. And you look later and it's like a view from nearby. You're like, oh, why didn't you, why didn't you make that bigger, right? But Jesus is never going to disappoint you. What you see with him is just a snippet. In fact, his view is far better than what we can see right now. That first group, those who are disappointed with Jesus, if that's you this morning, he says, invite me in. Invite me in to disappoint all those false views so I can present who I really am to you. The second group, though, this is easier to relate to, I feel like, is those who are disappointed with themselves. That second group is those who are disappointed with themselves. These are, are those moments where we, have, uh, we feel like religious failures. And I'll just say this is an ongoing thing for followers of Jesus. I was sitting uh, next to Nehemiah, my son, just before I was about to come up here and, and preach, and I was reminded of a religious failing that I had this past week, something that I probably should have done, but I didn't do. And it's so easy to slip into that moment of like, oh, man, I really suck as a follower of Jesus. Right? If, if I was a real follower of Jesus, maybe even hear this, if I was a real follower of Jesus, I would have done better. I would have actually done that thing instead of acting the way that, that I did. In fact, that's how most people think Christianity works. If you just do the right thing, then God will be pleased with you. And if you don't do the wrong thing, then God will love you. And that's not how it works. So the second group is for those who are disappointed with themselves. Listen to uh, Mark 14, 26 to 31. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus was talking about a scripture from the Old Testament. But after I am raised up, Jesus is saying, I'm going to get up from the grave. After I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Jesus, even though all of them fall away, I will not. Right, one of those epic Peter moments. Jesus said to him, I imagine him saying, buddy, but he says, truly, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he emphatically said, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. They all said the same. Here's the thing. Jesus says, you're all going to leave. And they end up all leaving, but, but, but not Peter. But not Peter. Peter doesn't end up leaving. Peter doesn't want to deny. I mean, we'll see he does end up leaving eventually. Peter doesn't want to deny. And if you're like me, you don't want to deny. You don't set out to do the bad thing. You don't set out to do something antithetical to what you say you believe. No one sets out to do that. We wake up every morning being like, today's the day. I am going to follow Jesus with all, and I'm going to love him with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. You might not say it, but you think it, or you wish you think it, or something like that. But we get up with great intentions, and then it seems like our natural proclivity or inclinations is to fall into things that we don't want to do. We do things that we don't want to do, and we don't do things that we want to do and know we should do. And Peter, 
He doesn't want to deny. He wants to be the example. He wants to be the one of the 12 that's going to stand up when everyone else is going to fall away. He wants for Jesus to say, oh, that's right. I know I just said you're all going to fall away, but I forgot to say, but not Peter. Peter's a superhero. You can find him on the mountain with me in Galilee with his cape flapping in the wind, right? No. Peter had flawed thinking because Peter, even up to this moment, thought that he was loved by Jesus because he would not deny. He was loved by Jesus because he was going to stay with him. He was loved by Jesus because when everyone else was going to bail, he was going to stick with him closer than a brother. Let's see what happened. In verse 50, it says, they all left him and fled. They all left him and fled. And I, I love verse 51 and 52 because this is probably Mark who actually wrote this. Mark wrote himself into this. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. <laughs> Peter helped Mark write this, as tradition goes. And I just imagine this being a funny moment with Peter saying, Hey, Mark, why don't you put in there that you were naked running away? And Mark's like, I don't want to. And the Holy Spirit says, No, put it in there. I want that. I want that in there. Right? But they all leave. They all leave. Peter bails, but, but Peter goes to the place where Jesus is being tried, and he stands outside there. So Peter, in his heart, was saying, I haven't left. I'm there. I'm still with you, Jesus. But listen to what happens in verse 66 to 72. Peter was below in the courtyard, and one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you were also with the Nazarene Jesus, but he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. The servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, hey, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it, and after a little while, after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly, you were one of them, for you were a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Remember just a minute ago, like a hot minute ago, Peter was saying, I'm not going to deny you. I'm ready to die with you. And now a little girl, hey, you're, you're Peter. I evoke a curse upon myself. I don't even know this man, right? How quickly we fall. And immediately, the rooster crowed a second time. Peter remembered how Jesus said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. He broke down and wept. Peter fails his trial. Peter fails. Peter fulfills what Jesus said was going to happen. He denies him. He sells his allegiance to Jesus for freedom in that moment. For Peter, in that moment, disassociation was the only option. And we can all relate, can't we? We can all relate because we want to keep our promise that today, Lord, I'm going to go to my class and I'm going to interrupt my teacher and I'm going to be on mission for you and I'm going to shit and maybe, maybe you don't think this way, right? That's fine. But I'm going to share the gospel in the middle of my class. It's going to be epic. Revival's going to break out. McGill professors over lunchtime are going to fall on their faces, not because they're dead, but in repentance. And it's going to be awesome. And then the professor makes fun of Christianity, and you're just like, yeah, that's that, yeah. And you just kind of put your head down, and you're in shame. Now, I'm not advocating you to stand up in the middle of class unless the Holy Spirit rushes upon you to do that. But we can relate because we want to be loyal. We want to be loyal. We want to use our lives 
for, for Jesus, and yet we, we disappoint. We want to stand up, but we fail. And most of us think in those moments, man, Jesus expected so much more of me. Jesus expected so much more of me, and I bet he's just giving up on me now. Or we think, how am I going to show Jesus that I love him still? Or we think, I was supposed to be the example. I was the only Christian at my workplace and the only Christian in my school and the only Christian in my neighborhood. I'm supposed to be the example, and I did this. How is anyone ever going to come to be a follower of Jesus now? But here's the thing. Jesus knew that all of them were going to fail. Jesus told them, you're all going to leave me. He didn't say, you better not leave me. He's like, hey guys, by the way, you're all going to bail. But after I rise from the dead, make sure you meet me in Galilee. Right? I'm not giving up on you. All of them are going to fail. And in fact, all humans have been failing from the beginning. And this is in fact why Jesus came. And so Jesus tells his disciples more about why he came at this Passover meal. And this is where we're really going to hone it. We'll finish here. We're going to hone in on who Jesus really is. Because this Jesus will not disappoint you. So this Passover meal was to remember the Exodus. There's a book called Exodus in the Old Testament. I would encourage you to read that, especially the first 19, 20 chapters of that. It tells the story of how God rescues his people from slavery, and it's a picture of how Jesus would rescue his people from spiritual slavery. And so this Exodus shows that God frees his people, and the way that he does that is through Ultimately, this, this last night, this Passover, when the angel of death would pass over Egypt and he would kill the firstborn child in every home. Unless that house had the blood of a lamb on the, the lintel of the door, so the doorposts. And if there was the blood of a lamb, as God prescribed, there, that angel of death would pass over that house and they would be safe. And so it was going to take the blood of a lamb to free the people of God from slavery. And on this night, Jesus is saying to his disciples and to all of us, I am the better lamb. That lamb, that lamb could provide for that one night and for a few people. And I'm the lamb that's going to provide for all people who will submit to me. Look at what happens. I, I don't have time to read all of this, but in verse 14, 3 to 9, which, which Nate read for us, we saw that there was a woman who anointed Jesus with this very costly ointment. And as the Jews would, would prepare the Passover feast, they had to do it very carefully and had to make sure that the lamb was prepared in a very specific way. In a sense, anointing it for death. And Jesus was being anointed by this woman, prepared for death to happen. And then in chapter 14, verse 12 to 24, Jesus is going to redefine the elements of this Passover meal. And let me read to you verse 22 to 24. As they were eating, as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them. And this would have been staggering to them. They would have expected a different thing to come from Jesus' mouth. But instead, he breaks the bread, part of Passover, and he says, this is my body. Everything you've been celebrating up till this point is all about me. You've been waiting for me to come. 
You've been longing for me to come and to rescue you holistically in every way that you need it. Tonight, this is my body broken for you. Those of you who are going to fail me in a, in a few minutes, this is my body broken for you. And he took a cup, and we had given thanks. He gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, and this, this is my blood. This is my blood of the covenant, the promise, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine till the day when I drink of it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus is redefining this entire meal. The bread is my body, the wine is my blood. And so in a very real sense, Jesus is saying, no longer are you going to eat this as a religious remembrance. Now when you take this, every time you get together, you're going to remember me. And you're not going to remember me like, oh, remember Jesus came and did this thing a few thousand years ago or a few days ago whenever you took it. You're going to remember me that I'm here right now with you. I am in your presence. We're going to take this in a little bit, and we're going to remember that Jesus is here with us and that he did these things for us, that Jesus is our Passover lamb, the lamb that we needed to come, and we're going to eat him today. You're like, I didn't know I was coming to eat Jesus. Welcome to Church 21. Um, but why would we eat him? Why does Jesus make this strange, visceral thing? Now, we don't believe, we believe that there's a lot of mystery in this, but we don't believe that this little stale wafer is somehow going to become the body of Jesus. It still is in remembrance of him. But why do we eat him? And I think that, one, it's so that we are, our senses, our senses are involved. That we used to have one big, really tasty loaf of bread. And I would always take way too big of a chunk out of that. And I would enjoy it. Like it's so tasty. Because the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done is tasty. It's tasty. But the other thing that happens is when we eat something and we allow for it to go into our body, we lose control. Now, I didn't do this, okay? Let me be clear. Didn't do this. But if we had poisoned the crackers, again, didn't do it. Really, really clear. We probably should write up a statement that Dwight did not poison crackers, as far as I know. Um, but if we did that, and you ate of that, this is the whole idea of like everyone's drinking the Kool-Aid, right? You drink the Kool-Aid, and no one leaves. <laughs> when you, now, I'm going to make a positive, right? Get ready, positive is coming, okay? There's no poison in this. But when you eat, and when you take, you lose control. You don't get to say to things that have gone down into your digestive tract, no, 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 uh, remove poison. You don't get to do this like Dr. Strange type thing, you know, and like organizing everything. You don't get to do that, right? Whatever goes in is going to control you. And this is what we do when we take of this table that we're saying, Jesus, I want you to control me. I want you to take over. I want you to disappoint all the false views that I have of you. I want for you to keep showing up. I want for you to comfort me. I, I want your grace. I want your mercy. I want you more than anything in this world. That's why we keep taking this and being reminded of this. And when we take it, we declare our dependence on him. That we declare that we have no hope without him. We have no hope without him.
Lord, would you stop the running upstairs, please? (laughs) But when we say yes to Jesus, when we say yes to Jesus, we're saying no to all other options. When we say yes to, to Jesus as our everything, we're saying no to everything else as our God. We're saying you are all that we need. And so as Jesus being the lamb, the lamb of God, he's the lamb of God without blemish. He never did anything wrong. He never sinned. He never rebelled against God. He is unlike you and I in that way. And yet he came and he took all of our wrong onto himself. And he bought our freedom with his blood. He bought our freedom with his blood. And then he didn't stay dead. But here's the good news. He rose from the dead. And he's alive and he's active. And on that night, there were some significant changes that took place. The Passover, the Lamb of God being enjoyed once a year, an annual thing, has now moved to an everyday thing. That we enjoy him every day. It moved from a dead lamb that we enjoy and have to eat everything in one night to now this living lamb that we get to enjoy on an ongoing basis. And it went from a few people in a tiny country being delivered to all people from all tribes, tongues, nations having the opportunity to be freed and delivered by King Jesus. This changes everything. And this table is for you and this table is for anyone that you come in contact even the Judases of this world. Judas was offered this type of hope. Let me read to you verse 32 to 42. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. It actually says in another place, he was sweating drops of blood, which is medically possible when someone is under such great duress. It's in a medical journal. It's a fascinating reading uh, that, that someone can be under that type of duress. Jesus said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, Jesus fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, which means daddy, father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will but what you will. He came and found them sleeping, said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. Again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to answer him. Came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping? Take your rest. It's enough. The hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. Jesus said, Dad, if there's any way, if there's any other way other than me taking the cup of wrath for all people, if there's any way that we can do this differently, let's do that. But it's not about my will, it's your will. Whatever you want to happen, I'm in for. And Jesus received a no that night from his dad. Jesus, God the Son, received a no from God the Father. No, this cup won't pass. The cup of my wrath is coming directly to you. Jesus received a no from the Father so that failing Peter, like pe- failing people like Peter and failing people like you and I can receive a yes. That you are so loved. This type of love is offered out to Judas's Peter's and, and you. 
you are no longer defined by your failings. You're no longer defined by those things I heard as I was sitting there ready to come up and preach. That's not who I am. That's not my deepest identity. Of course I'm a failure. Of course I don't do the things that I want to do and do the things that I don't want to do. But that's not my identity. My identity is found in the one who came and lived and died and lives again forever. The one who came to forgive me and make me his. So what will you do with your failings? What are you going to do with your failings? Are you going to go and hang yourself like Judas did? That's what he did. He couldn't take the guilt. And so he hung himself. Or are you going to be like Peter? And will you allow for Jesus to reinstate you again in that moment? The moment of your failing, Jesus is ready to reinstate you. He's not waiting for you to take weeks to figure out what's really going on with me. He's, he's waiting for you to say, Jesus, I need your help. He's like, oh, I want to help you. I want to show you that despite what you just did, I love you and I'm for you and I'm going to keep changing you. See, Jesus was falsely accused so he could take the true accusations against us. Here's what's going to happen if you're a follower of Jesus. Let me read to you uh, Zechariah. There's a book in the, the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1 to 5. This is going to be your fight if you're a follower of Jesus. Then he showed me the Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So you have the one who's in charge of, of all the people of God and you have Satan both standing before God. And Satan is ready to say accusations against who this leader is. And his accusations are going to be true. Satan always speaks truth to God. He knows he can't play with God. He's going to speak truth about who this leader actually is. And before he can speak, look what happens. Verse 2, the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the Lord clothed with filthy garments. Now you have to hear this. As a leader, as the high priest overseeing the people of God, you had to have the cleanest of cleans. Right? You had to wear the Clorox version of a turban and robe. Like You couldn't have human excrement all over your, your robes. And that's what this picture is saying. The one representing the people of God has human excrement all over him. And he's standing before God. It's kind of nasty, isn't it? Satan is ready to say, look at your leader. Disgusting, nasty, gross. These are your people. Look at them. And ready to say to them, you can't actually be part of the people of God. Look at you. Look at how disgusting you are. You can't get it right. You can't lead people. In verse 4, the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. He doesn't say, Joshua, that's right. Satan's right. Get it right. Get your act together. And if you get your act together, then we'll be able to put some clean clothes on you. But show me that you're worthy of clean clothes. No. He says, have them removed. And to him, he said, behold, imagine this. You know all the things that you did and having God look at you eye to eye. It says, behold, I have taken your iniquity, your sin away from you. And I am clothing you with pure and clean vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing 
by. You see, religion is going to lie to you. Religion is going to say you need to do a little bit more for God to love you. That's, that's a lie. The enemy, there's a very real and active enemy moving in this world, and he's going to lie to you that you're not good enough. Or if you'd only do these things, you'd only be this way, then you can be loved. And here's what the gospel says, is that, that you are completely loved by God, and he showed it by demonstrating that in, in, in sending Jesus, coming to die on your behalf, taking all of the wrong that you've ever done onto himself, and then rising in proclaiming that you have a brand new identity in him, one that can never be taken away. And Jesus was condemned in this trial so that you'll never ever have to be condemned. You will only be welcomed. You will only be heard by God. Not hurt by God, heard by God and loved by him. And you have full access to him today. So let me end with asking these questions. I wish we could talk so much more about this text, but we just can't. Let me ask these questions. How have you been disappointed with Jesus? How have you been disappointed with Jesus? Will you bring those to him today? Will you say, Jesus, I've been disappointed with you in these ways. Is this actually who you are? Is this actually who you are? And, and if it's not who you are, then would you train me and teach me to understand and know who you really are? And Would you help me to leave those false views behind and let those die? You see, because Jesus will never disappoint. Don't let Jesus remain a means for your end. Don't, don't let Jesus remain a, a sugar daddy in your life that will help you get what you want. Jesus is the ends and the means. He is what you long for in your, your deepest heart of hearts, and he's the way to actually get there. The second question is, how are you disappointed with yourself? How are you disappointed with yourself? Jesus knows you're going to blow it. Jesus is never surprised when you do. And that's exactly why he didn't blow it. It's exactly why he didn't fail. He came out victorious. And he has the authority to say over your life today, innocent, beloved, not your failings, mercy, my people, my person. And he doesn't do it generically. He does it like Nate and Emily and Matt and Madison and Nehemiah and Jess and Malachi and, and Angus and Eben and Kristen and Stephen and Rob and Jill. And he goes that way. He gets very personal with you. He knows you. He knows your shortcomings. He knows your failures. And he loves you anyway. That's remarkable news. The world tells us that you are your successes. And Jesus says, I am your success. I am your success. So today, your guilt is gone. <laughs> your guilt is absolutely gone. And you can, you can worship the one who proclaimed that, that I am the I am. Jesus said as he stood on trial, I am. The same one who brought his people out of slavery in Egypt is saying, I'm going to bring my people out of spiritual slavery. So we started by saying, if you're a leader and everyone abandons you, what does that say about you? Well, Jesus is the only leader who has followers that will last forever. He's the only leader who has, who has made followers that will last forever, and he will never abandon you. Never abandon you. Such good news for us.
Let me pray and then we'll respond. Jesus, thank you that you are alive and active and moving. Thank you that you are the better Passover lamb. Thank you that you are the one who came to make us right. I want to pray for those who are here that don't yet know you in that way, that this morning they would be made right with you, that they would see that your death on the cross, Jesus, was for them, and that your resurrection was for them, and that they can have real life and freedom and love, one that is not defined by their failures and successes, but rather defined by your success, Jesus. I pray that they would submit to that. I want to pray for those of us who have had a wrong view of who you are, Jesus, that we have been disappointed with you because we've been carrying the wrong view. Would you change that this morning? Would you help us to see you more correctly than we did when we woke up? And would we respond to the true you? I want to pray for those of us who have been disappointed with ourselves. And we come almost looking for a sermon to, to kind of smack us upside the head so that we can get right again. And that that wouldn't be what this is that it would be an awakening to hearts that are overwhelmed with religious burdens that we were not meant to carry. That there would be a revival, a resuscitation, a fresh breath again, like getting off an airplane and being able to rip off your mask and get fresh air. How beautiful that is. And the religious smotherings that, that act like masks, that, that hold things in. Where would you cause for those to be taken off this morning? when we breathe in the fresh air of your grace and mercy and love again? And would we see that we are truly like Peter, that though we have failed you, that we've denied you, you want to reinstate us and you love us. And we love you. We need you for everything. Amen.